From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Air Talk. Good morning. I'm Larry Mantle. It was the second straight weekend of protests against the killing of George Floyd and police brutality. There's a public viewing for Floyd today in Houston, where he grew up. He'll be buried there tomorrow. In Minneapolis, where the Odell Floyd lived and died, council members vowed to defund and dismantle the police department. We'll examine what would take the department's place once it's abolished. Also, Democrats in Congress are introducing the Justice in Policing Act. We'll see what's in it. And the state of California has issued its guidelines for reopening film and TV production. There'll be a lot of changes as people return to work. It's Air Talk right after NPR News. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Such pleasure to have you with us today. I hope your weekend was a good one. Whether you were out and about taking part in one of the many large protests around Southern California or seeing family or friends or just stunkering down at the house. Throughout the course of this week, we have many important topics to talk about, including the ongoing protests against the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Uh, Look as well as COVID-19 and its developments. That's part of today's program as well. And I'd like to hear from you if you were out this weekend taking part in protests, if there were large-scale protests in your community, whether you participated or not, what you saw, the composition of the crowds, uh, what the spirit of the events were like, uh, and also some of the news coming out, including uh, in Minneapolis, where majority of the city council says that it's going to defund and essentially abolish the police department, putting something else in its place. Uh, to interface between government and the community. We're at 866-893-KPCC, 866-893-5722. If you were out at any of the protests, you live or work in any of the areas of protests, if you were a law enforcement officer working any of the protests, please give us a call, 866-893-5722. Joining me now, KPCC reporter Joe Josie Wong, who was out at a number of the protests. Uh, Josie, share with us uh, what the protests were like uh, that you covered this weekend. Oh, well, Larry, uh, what was really interesting for me to see uh, bouncing all over the city is just how constant and how steadfast a presence uh, protesters have been keeping on the streets of L.A. and actually the rest of Southern California. And that's a lot of ground to cover. Uh, This weekend, me and photojournalist Chavez Sanchez saw this firsthand. We were first in downtown where there were hundreds of people marching from City Hall to Staples Center. That was a protest. I understand that was organized by uh, a 19-year-old and a 21-year-old. That was something I saw a lot of is uh, young people organizing these very large demonstrations uh, by themselves for the first time. Uh, after that, we hopped over to Hollywood and over the course of the day followed thousands of protesters on foot. And uh, to be honest, we hadn't set out to do this, but uh, this, this protest route ended up going from Hollywood and Vine to the Fairfax District to West Hollywood. 
Uh, we ended up following them for over 14 miles. And of course, some of the protesters were not there the whole way. They joined and peeled off. But I think many others did do this whole circuit. And uh, how did the protests, because they they weren't uh, officially given permits and streets closed and the like, as I understand it. So how did the protests deal with all the traffic on the streets? So what I saw is for the most part, um, well, Saturday traffic was already not very heavy from what I could tell. Uh, and there were definitely times along the marching, the march uh, route where I did see uh, bottlenecks where there were people, uh, motorists backed up and honking. Sometimes it was hard to tell if they were honking because they were upset about uh, the, the congestion or if they were um, mar- uh, honking in support of the protesters. But that's um, those are the few times I saw LAPD show up. I remember seeing uh, outside Hollywood High probably um, five or six LAPD cruisers. One of them, um, actually, one vehicle was unmarked, but you could tell there were police officers inside. They were kind of on the outskirts of the protest and um, kind of inching closer to kind of move the protesters along. And after a few minutes, the protesters did. There were, from what I could tell, no issues between uh, the protesters and LAPD on Saturday. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that, you know, they the LAPD had made themselves scarce. Uh, scarce. I could Uh, say the same thing about the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. You just didn't see them very much. Um, On many street corners, you did see the um, National Guard. And, you know, they are an intimidating presence with their their rifles and their armored trucks. But I could tell they have a much better relationship with the public. In fact, I saw a protester go up to um, a National Guardsman and say, you are so much better than LAPD. I saw an older woman in West Hollywood actually ask, a bunch of guardsmen from San Diego to sign her cast. Of course, they have a distinctly different job than LAPD was, so they're not doing the same thing. But it is understandable that people, because because the guard sort of stands back um, and takes a more passive presence, uh, that that would be better received. So it, it sounds like, from what you're saying, that that there was a different mood. And is there a way to attribute how much of that was to the police not being right up, attempting to draw a line around the protesters? Um, I, you know, I think that definitely helped. But I think, you know, the protesters at least felt that, you know, their message from the beginning was not they weren't trying to be confrontational with police. They just had this message about defunding the police department and about police brutality. And what I heard from protesters is that if you leave us alone to do what we're do, what we want to do, which is to, you know, speak out about um, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, nothing's going to happen. We're just trying to um, be part of history, be part of a movement. Um, and uh, I did see that message a lot. I also saw some other groups trying to um, make a direct link from what's happening in this country um, about uh, systemic the conversation about systemic racism and linking it to the White House. So you saw groups like speaking, uh, uh, like refuse fascism, um, also starting uh, to organize as well. Um, But, you know, you saw groups like that, which are uh, well-established and known. But for the most part, Larry, the people I saw who were organizing were just young, you know, teenagers and 20-somethings who had befriended each other at the protests, at, at, at other protests, or over social media like Instagram. And, you know, I, you wouldn't have guessed it from looking at them that they didn't know each other for ages. 
but they really have just known each other for days. And um, I think I've just really bonded over the fact that these are times of high stakes and uh, they have this shared sense of being part of something really big right now. From what I can see in the television coverage, it looks like most crowds are very youthful, as you're describing, and very multicultural. They look very much like the city of Los Angeles. Is that what it looks like on the ground, Josie? Most definitely. I just, uh, it was a very diverse group of people. Um, and I would say that uh, they're very media savvy, social media savvy, and, um, and connected that way. Um, I saw actually, it was interesting for me too to notice that some of the organizers um, of the Saturday protests were the children of immigrants from the Caribbean, um, from Africa and um, have a very strong sense of um, being second generation, being part of this country and um, wanting to rise up is what I heard from a lot of folks um, and and just like be part of um, a larger movement. It was um, really interesting to see just also just a lot of ad hoc groups come together, not just to organize the committee, but just the day of, uh, sorry, organize protests, but just the day of the protest. I saw, you know, a a bunch of young bicyclists um, who had, all found each other at the Hollywood protest and just kind of, um, you know, saw their people, right? And they just saw gathered at the um, at the head of the protest in advance of, um, you know, it marching down um, through Hollywood. And uh, they all decided very quickly that they were going to um, ride ahead to make sure that nobody, no motorists drove into the crowds, which we have seen happening um, at other protests across the country. And, um, yeah, you just saw these people who have never met each other, you know, telling me that after today, I mean, they were just going to be friends for life. Josie, thanks so much for setting the scene on that very large march that took place starting in Hollywood. We appreciate it very much. Um, and I hope you're able to get some rest. Seems like you're just working constantly. So, <laughs> You know, there's, it's like the same adrenaline. I think a lot of people are feeling this on the streets. Reporters are, want to be out there to um you know, documenting this history. Josie Wong, KPCC reporter, doing just that, joining us on Air Talk this morning, asking you if you were part of any of the protests that took place over the weekend. And I don't mean just necessarily the big L.A. County ones, because there were marches in other cities as well here in Southern California. It'd be good to hear about some of those that maybe did not get as much coverage to share what happened in your community. And I'm including not just participants, but people who live there, work in the community, observed it. I happened to be in Long Beach yesterday and I saw a march going down uh, Ocean uh, Boulevard. Uh, A lot of people, there were a lot of cars driving by honking their horns in support of the protesters as they were marching through Long Beach. They had their own uh, march yesterday, 866-893-KPCC. And if you're law enforcement or National Guard and you work these, I'd be interested to hear what you saw too. Let's talk with Teresa in Belmont Sure. Thank you for being with us. I understand that you went to a Friday afternoon protest there in Long Beach. Yeah, Friday around 1 p.m. There was an organized um, protest along the bridge off of Bayshore in between um, Bayshore and Naples. It was super amazing to see the amount of young people, uh, middle-aged people, a really diverse crowd kind of set up on both sides of the bridge. Um, Around 3.45 p.m., the police did block off the street for us. Um, What I heard was that the the protesters had either gotten a permit or had contacted the police department and worked with them. 
um, the police department blocked off eastbound traffic, and we were allowed to march down this street, which is amazing because living right off of 2nd Street, it's not anything I would ever imagine. Um, a bunch of the stores were boarded up, and it was amazing to see everyone was happy and uplifting. There was no looting. There was no rioting. Everyone was just in a syncopated manner. It was awesome. Yeah, sounds it sounds like it was a very positive experience for you and, and the other participants. Teresa, I appreciate it very much from Belmont Shore in Long Beach talking about the Friday afternoon protest there. Jerry in Hawthorne, I understand you marched in Westchester? Yes, uh, yes, Larry, good morning. Um, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Uh, yes, it was in Westchester uh, about 3 to 6 p.m. yesterday. Very well organized, very safe, very family oriented, and um, um, there were we saw evidence of a few. It's actually City of Los Angeles in that area, and so it's patrolled a little bit uh, by LAPD, but uh, only just a couple of black and whites driving uh, driving by from time to time. It was there was it was really great. Nothing bad happened. It was totally awesome. Of course, there was maybe five six hundred people out there. It was uh, it was very good all the way from kids about three or four years old up to my age, uh, seventy years old. First time I ever engaged in anything like that, Lauren. Wow! And Jerry, um, were there conversations that you had with others, you know, people you didn't know as you were marching, um, talking about the issues that you were marching on behalf of, um, or unrelated conversation? What well, what was that like? Um, it was very good. Uh, many people had um, uh, they they had speakers, you know, the loud squawk boxes that they brought along, and we would uh, we were um, expressing ourselves very um, very calmly, very lawfully, and very pleasantly. There is one comment I would like to make, Larry. Okay, I'd like that. I'd like everybody to remember that even though I, I find what the police do abhorrent, detestable, and every other you know, synonym that goes along with what happened to Mr. Floyd there in Minnesota, as well as all the other black folks that have been mistreated and, and, and in many cases sadly killed. Um, you know, there, in, many, in many of those cases, there is some reason that the police came to the attention of these folks. I am a 70-year-old white male, um, so I cannot put myself in the shoes of, of any uh, African American black person in this country, in this country. But there's a re- reason that those people draw some attention to themselves for some reason. In the case of Mr. Floyd, you know, from what I understand, there was a, allegedly it was passing some try to pass a, um, some currency, you know. But now, did a twenty dollar bill, a fake twenty dollar bill? Maybe he didn't even know it was. Uh, Jerry, I have a lot of other calls, but let me just say in response to that, the concerns that people express are that so often things that involve a small amount of money or no physical threat escalate into something that ends up deadly. And the argument is that African-Americans are disproportionately represented in that. And we have other cases, too, where there is no precipitating thing at all that uh, ultimately leads to uh, an African-American being seriously injured or killed in the contact with police. So I understand what you're saying, that in some cases they don't come totally out of the blue and there are, are preceding events that bring police into it. 
but the critique is still what happens after police come into it, and what about the cases where um, there aren't reasons for law enforcement at the beginning to act as the way they do. 866-893-KPCC or the Air Talk page, kpcc.org. Uh, let's take another call. Um, let's see, Elaine in Los Feliz, you're on Air Talk. Yes, hi. Um, I'm 60 years old, and I was at the protest, uh, the Black Lives Matter protest in Hollywood yesterday. And I've um, been protesting most of my life, but I've been nervous about getting into this because um, I lost my father-in-law two weeks ago to COVID. So I am keenly aware of the danger of being out in the street. But in the last week, I've started to kind of just go out and go on the fringe of um, the protest so that I could be there because I felt so compelled. And yesterday I just made the decision I was going to go to the protest in Hollywood. And I have to say the organization was so unbelievably together. There were people giving out water. There were people giving out food. There were people walking around with hand sanitizer. When they saw people with no masks, they gave them masks. They had first aid kits. And this wasn't just like one or two people. I mean, they had, you know, kind of a whole group assigned to this and they would walk through the crowd and make sure people were safe and whatever they needed. And there was a station for people to make signs. Um, and there were, you know, just yeah. groups of, 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 of people, young and old. And, you know, I get it. I get that I need to stay a little further away, but it doesn't mean that you can't be there or participate because it's so powerful and I was so proud to be there. And I found the crowd to just be, I, I don't like to say it's a party atmosphere because it's not, because everyone is serious. And I know what you mean, that there's a social element to it as well as a political element. I assume that's what you're saying. Exactly. But hats off to Black Lives Matter. They, they, have, they know what they're doing. They're trying to keep people safe out there, and they're making their voices be heard. So. Elaine, I appreciate your call. Thank you so much for joining us. Jacob in El Sereno says, I went to a protest with my boyfriend last week, and we ended up being chased by police. But yesterday I went to Hollywood. It was a very different mood. Uh, and Mastora in Chatsworth says, uh, on Saturday there was a protest organized by elementary schools. We really enjoyed it. My son is from Ethiopia. Ethiopia. It was good for him to feel supported. We saw little police presence and everyone social distance. That's Mastora in Chatsworth. You're listening to Air Talk on KPCC. Coming up, we'll talk about Minneapolis's city council announcing that it is going to totally do away with the police system. Uh, police department as it's currently constituted and come up with something entirely different in its place. We'll talk about what that might look like in one minute on Air Talk. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. Later, we'll be getting the very latest on COVID 19 as. Dr. Peter Chen Hong, UC San Francisco Medical Center, returns to join us, the noted infectious disease specialist. He's one of our favorite guests. He's become a breakout medical star on AirTalk, and he'll be joining us coming up a little bit later on the program. 
you've undoubtedly been hearing as a part of the protests, uh, some of those protesting police brutality and uh, the killing of George Floyd. Uh, in there have been calls to defund the police. It has been a rallying cry. Uh, we're going to talk about what that really means, uh, particularly in light of the Minneapolis City Council and the majority of its members saying yesterday they support disbanding the city's police department. Nine of the 12 members appeared at a rally in a city park yesterday afternoon and made that vow. Council member Jeremiah Ellison promising the council would dismantle the department. The question is, what would replace it? How would that replacement deal with community relations? How would it would, would it respond to calls for service? How would it meet both the needs of what a current traditional police department does, but deal with the concerns of activists that that means often uh, running roughshod over a community? Joining us to talk about it is retired Los Angeles Police Department Sheriff Cheryl Dorsey. Uh, we appreciate your being with us, Sergeant, once more. Your thoughts about what Minneapolis is doing and, and, and what does it mean to you when when activists talk about defunding the police? Well, there's not a lot of specificity with regards to what Minneapolis is going to do in terms of replacing the department. You dismantle it, you break it down, and you do what? I envision something like what happened here in uh, Compton, California years ago when the Compton Police Department was dismantled and L.A. County sheriffs wind up taking over enforcement jurisdictionally in that area. So I'm not really sure what they're talking about, but I also remember there was a time, you know, as I listen to these young people who, you know, really just want to abolish police, that's not going to happen. I don't think there's a city mayor anywhere that will allow that. But it reminds me of the early 80s when I was on the LAPD and I worked in an area in Los Angeles that's referred to as the jungle. Uh, it's an area I grew up there. I know it well. Yes. So Okay, so you know the jungle. And yeah. Back then, I worked uh, over there behind the um, Crenshaw Mall in the jungle, and there were a group of, of gentlemen who lived in that area, and they were pretty heavily entrenched, and they were FOI, which is the, the, the military security arm, if you will, for the Nation of Islam, FOI being Food of Islam. And there were many skirmishes between um, myself and my, my training officer who um, was responsible for that area, when we would respond to radio calls, the brothers from the FOI would actually see us on the streets, come down, meet with us, and then kind of demand, you know, what we were to know, what were we doing and who were we there to see. And, of course, you could understand how that didn't go over well because we're the authority figure and my training officer, uh, you know, was not going to kowtow to them. But thankfully, you know, he was a mature gentleman, and although he was a white guy, he, you know, knew better than to do anything that would be considered offensive or disrespectful, and so never had anything other than just sometimes very um, spirited discussions, if you will. And eventually, they allowed us, if you want to call it that, <laughs> we did what we were there to do. And uh -huh. I know if they were trying to bully, you know, the community into calling them, you know, whenever there was a situation, because the community never did resort to calling them if there was conflict. And so I don't, I don't know how these young yeah. people think there's some other occupying force that could replace a bona fide police department. One of the things, Sergeant Dorsey, that I was, because when I hear 
sometimes, and maybe I'm misunderstanding what what is being called for, but it sounds like the community empowered to respond to concerns itself. So you'd have community members uh, that I guess would be democratically chosen. They would respond to situations, many of which advocates argue don't need a police response that could be done by people trained in the community. But when you're actually talking about response to crimes, property crimes or or violent crimes, then, you know, then what happens at that point? And do you run the risk that you actually end up with having, you know, people from the community, a certain subset who see opportunity either to shake down people or the gangs that try and, you know, use it to their advantage? It would seem that this is something that could be a noble beginning, but easily corrupted. Well, you know, listen, it's a whole slippery slope, and and, and it's kind of nonsensical. These young people don't really understand the intricacies uh, and the politics of of what what we do as first responders. And so let's just talk about those kinds of, let's say, low-level property crimes. We won't even get into a full-fledged felony assault where you've got someone who's been victimized and now they need to go to the hospital. Who's responsible for taking this person to the hospital and what reports get completed? And how do you get those reports to the district attorney for criminal prosecution of the suspect? How do you get that suspect into custody if you find the one who just stole grandma's purse (laughs) or broke into a car? I mean, there's just a a, a whole litany of things that a a citizen cannot do. And with regards to having someone respond to deal with mental illness, again, something we did on the Los Angeles Police Department early on when uh, I was a young rookie, we had uh, a mental evaluation unit that worked out of Parker Center. So I'm dating myself. And there were times when we responded to situations where we had professionals that were in tandem with our police officers who worked the mental evaluation unit. So there's a way to do it. It's not reinventing the wheel. It's been done successfully here on the Los Angeles Police Department, the premier department in the country, if you will. And so I don't understand what they're talking about in this. All right. We're talking with retired Sergeant Cheryl Dorsey of the LAPD. Uh, She was on the force from 1980 to 2000. We're talking about the call to defund police or to abolish police, replace it with something else that's more community centric. Uh, And I invite your calls, your questions, your comments. We're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722. Uh, apparently, the Anoka County Sheriff, uh, which um, Minneapolis, I guess, is within that county, says his department has no appetite to help Minneapolis if they defund police. So that could further strain the relationship. With us, former Seattle Police Chief Norm Stamper. He was on with us last week. We always appreciate him joining us on Air Talk. his most recent book, To Protect and Serve, How to Fix America's Police. Chief Stamper, it's great to have you with us again. Uh, first of all, just sort of defining terms, how do you understand uh, the concept of defunding police? My my. Uh concept really of of a uh, uh, a very different public safety mechanism uh, is quite different from what the sergeant was talking about. I have deep respect for her experience and for her opinions. But I am of the view that it is time for us to acknowledge the failure, uh, profound failure of American policing and to replace the current model with something entirely different 
uh, and to do so in joint partnership, I mean a true authentic partnership between community and today's existing police. I agree completely with the sergeant that uh, when you've got a Columbine, a Las Vegas, a Sandy Hook, uh, when you have a a genuine life-threatening situation, the impulse is to call the cops, and that's a legitimate and very important impulse. And I think the police have to be at the ha- at the table during the reinvention. But my model is a people's police model. It is a true community-based model in which the community is engaged in every aspect of police operations. And how do you get consensus through that? Because one of the things that we see, and, and you know, this isn't just in communities of color, it's in every community where people try and hash out decisions that don't have the sorts of life and death um, or livelihood consequences that policing does. And that's very, very difficult to build consensus within any community. How do you do that uh, around something that is as emotionally loaded as law enforcement? Well, I think the first order of business is to create a framework or a structure that allows people to be heard, allows people to come together collaboratively uh, to create this new public safety uh, constitution honoring uh, uh, system. And my suggestion, which I lay out in my latest book, uh, is to... Uh, tap the power uh, of representative democracy. If, for example, we were to uh, hold elections within census blocks, census groupings in which we would have from one to 8,000 people of a particular uh, city saying, we elect the following people uh, to serve on, on this board that works with the police to reinvent the institution. And what that really boils down to for me uh, is, is something more akin to, I think, what we had in mind at the, uh, at the formation of this country, where we have a true representative government. Right now, we do not. Right now, the police uh, are, are you know, the, the mentality that I see all together too often is we're the cops, and you're not. And we will decide what we're going to do and how we're going to do it, uh, irrespective of community needs and fears and expectations. So that if we were to create a, a new governing structure, policies, procedures, education, training, oversight, investigation into allegations of police misconduct uh, and participation, literally, in the disciplinary process, we would have something resembling true community, please. So we we have in Los Angeles, um, uh, I believe the nation's second largest law enforcement agency, um, a, uh, a police commission, an appointed commission to represent the public uh, that oversees the police department along with the mayor of the city. Is what you're proposing the idea that you ha- would have maybe dozens of many community-based police commissions? Yes. Uh, If it's to be a true grassroots-based people's police, then I think we must make that decision. We cannot, um, I I can't envision, for example, a body of X number of people presiding over this entire process. True 
community-based, neighborhood-based policing requires neighborhood representation. And the police commission uh, in the city of Los Angeles, which of course has been around for a long, long time, is just not the answer uh, to the challenges that I think we're facing today. Steve, Nor would it satisfy the vast majority of those who are uh, essentially taking the line of defunding, uh, decommissioning their police departments? Uh, Steve in Lake Balboa in the San Fernando Valley says, um, Chief, you probably haven't been on next door. Neighbors disagree all the time. If you empower them, nothing will get resolved. Uh, how would Tarzana talk to Northridge, speaking of two San Fernando Valley communities? You need one authority that cuts across all jurisdictions. That's Steve in Lake Balboa. Uh, Chief Stamper, your response to that listener comment? Uh, respect it, but disagree with it. Uh, I, I think uh, disagreement is fundamental to the process of democracy. Uh, conflict and tension are inevitable. I think all we need to do is look back over the history of American policing to appreciate uh, how difficult, if not impossible, it has been under the paramilitary, bureaucratic, one-boss kind of uh, uh, command and control system of, of, of policing to see that it cannot succeed, that what is needed is a true grassroots mechanism. I don't pretend that it's easy. I I certainly don't think it's going to happen by Tuesday of next week. I think what has to happen is for us to capture the spirit, uh, maybe recapture is the better word for it, uh, of of those who uh, set out to create against the backdrop of due process and civil liberties guarantees uh, a, a public safety system. Uh, the, the tragedy of American law enforcement is that we have failed from the very beginning. The mechanism that we created initially, drawn out of the history of the slave patrols, was a very poor system to begin with. Now, um, we were talking about this last week, about policing coming out of slave patrols. Is that true in other parts of the community that don't have African-American populations? Are there forms of policing that we see in, you know, northern California rural communities or desert communities? Are, are they also based, is, is all of American policing based on that model? Well, when, when I say that, that American policing has its origins in the slave patrols, it was, in fact, local jurisdictions that enforced uh, all of the provisions uh, to ensure that slaveholders uh, were not compromised, that their financial interest in owning other human beings uh, w- was not jeopardized. So obviously there are differences from one jurisdiction to the other. So is it, does that mean then that urban areas with African-American populations, their approaches to policing um, just sort of ideologically and tactically are significantly different than what you find in regions without significant numbers of African-American residents? Oh, I, I, I not only believe that to be true uh, without being too arrogant, I know it to be true. Uh, there are 18,000 police departments in this country, which begins to suggest how significant the problem would be if we attempted to create national standards, which, by the way, I do support. Uh, but if, if you appreciate the fact that a rural agrarian kind of community is fundamentally different from, from a large urban uh, setting, 
then you, rec- you recognize that the methods and the uh, uh, models for public safety would vary from one jurisdiction to And that's what I'm trying to get at, because as you look hierarchically and sort of written uh, policies and procedures, it, you know, the police departments from the ex- looking from the outside in don't look like they're necessarily organized differently depending on where you are. So I was trying to get to sort of how would urban uh, police departments be different from their counterparts elsewhere. We're talking with Norm Stamper. He was the chief of police in Seattle, author of To Protect and Serve. Coming up, we'll talk with police practices consultant and former deputy chief of the Irvine Police Department, Jeff Noble, and we'll take your calls. We have a retired LAPD officer who's on the line. I'd love to hear from those of you who have strong opinions about this or your questions about what defund the police means what a replacement looks like. 866-893-KPCC. We're back in just 90 seconds. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us. We're talking about calls among some of the protesters out protesting the death of George Floyd in Minnesota while in police custody. Uh, Some have called for defunding police. And in Minnesota, the majority of the Minneapolis City Council calling for defunding their police. The question is, what would come next? There haven't been specifics yet. We're talking about potential other models and what are the pros and calls of those. You can share your comments on the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Norma writes on the page, there are a number of articles about what it means. Uh, save the police for serious crimes. Have better systems to deal with welfare checks, neighbor noise, catalytic converter theft, mental illness, etc. Uh, 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Also with us is Jeff Noble, police practices consultant. He's got his own firm, Noble Consulting. He's former deputy chief of the Irvine Police Department. Uh, Thank you very much, uh, Deputy Chief, for joining us. Uh, What are your thoughts about potential in Minneapolis for anything that could replace the police department there? Well, more than a little skeptical that we can replace police departments in Minneapolis or any place else in the country, um, the wholesale replacement of police departments, I just don't think that would be functional. I don't think it would work. It would um, probably devolve into something more like private policing services for wealthy communities where less wealthy communities or poor communities are left behind. Um, I, I don't think the answer is to eliminate police departments, but to um put into practice some of the things that we know that should be going on that we've ignored for many years, things that, that, you know, have been addressed by, you know, commissions that we've looked at police departments for many years from Wickersham to Kerner to Knapp to Christopher to Colts. And most recently the president's task force on 21st century policing. There are things that we can do to um, address um, police misconduct and police abuses um, and for various political reasons across the country at the federal, state, and local levels, um, those steps have not been put into practice. 
Let's talk about uh, sort of some of these other calls that law enforcement gets to come out on Norma, just talking about some of them, um, noise, um, welfare checks, mental illness, things like that. Is there a better better model for uh, public response to that than using law enforcement officers to do that? Well, I mean, you know, we've developed neighborhood watch groups in in, the, in our communities for years, um, but they're not really effective at addressing those some of those lower level kind of, uh, um, you know, peace disturbance type issues. And by the way, and I think this is important, those aren't the issues where we're concerned about police action. Um, the, the police seem to be handling those issues very well. Um, our concerns is, is police abuse and, and, you know, allegations of uh um, you know, racial disparity in, in enforcement actions. Um, you know, so it's not the little things, it's the big things. Um, and, you know, if you think about it, I mean, the, the you know, the, the mental health response, for example, is, is probably one of the bigger issues. Um, and, you know, I think the police would be the first to say, you know, um, if, if there's another resource that could go out and resolve these mental health crises, um, have at it. Um, but the reality is, you know, we have, as a country, fundamentally failed to build the infrastructure um, to address mental health issues early. Um, too much weight is being put on the police, um, and we definitely need to invest in other areas. But that doesn't mean by decreasing the police, but it's rather increasing our investments. We need to ramp up in these other areas before we take a look at ramping down by the police. And uh, I just wanted to point out, because it was such a, a tragic case here in Southern California about a decade ago, Kelly Thomas, who was a homeless man living on the streets of Fullerton, uh, who was dealing with schizophrenia, ended up being beaten to death by law enforcement officers in Fullerton. And that was a response to um, allegation that he was um pulling on car door handles and trying to get into cars, as, as I understand, but a, a true mental health crisis and, and a terrible incident that happened. Let's take a listener call. This uh, comes from Patrick in East L.A. I understand you're retired from LAPD? Yes, I am. I want to discuss the fact that without change reform, nothing can be done. But the police continue to ref- not reform themselves. They'll do the minimum. I'm an ex-police officer. I retired early because of the thin blue line mentality the police have. It is destructive and it's non-productive. Seventy-five percent of the people on police force, or maybe more, are very good operators. The twenty-five percent continue this issue, and the one thing the police always want to do is do not take our funds away. Maybe that we look at being honest and hold people more accountable. Why can we not hold police accountable? Because the police unions do not want their officers to be held accountable. That must change to change the system. Patrick, um, so you think you think reigning in the power of the police officers union, what would be a way uh, to do that? but still respecting the rights of, of officers um, to organize and to speak with a union voice. Well, here, here's the thing, Larry. Why do Republicans always fund police officer unions? It's the only one that is funded. The reason is because money is power. Power is money. Why do police think they should have more rights than anyone else? 
why should police be able to not ask the hard question? Let's hold ourselves accountable. They will not do it because the unions will not let them. So if we need to recreate the police, not get rid of them, but recreate it to where people are held accountable, this would solve a lot of the policing problems out there because the majority of police want to do the right thing. It's the minority that are causing the problems, and the police refuse to address those minorities in the police department. So Patrick, California. Let, let me ask you, if if the qualified immunity that's provided to law enforcement officers uh, with their use of force, which gives them a greater degree of protection than members of the general public, if that was removed, would that have had any effect on your willingness to be a police officer? Oh, to continue to be an officer? Yes. Or to go into law enforcement, would it have? Because one of the arguments that people make is if if you remove that and you make officers subject to a standard that is is closer to common with the general public, that that would that would make people afraid to do law enforcement because the legal exposure is so great. Well, how about this thought, Larry? What if police, if we reduced it by 75 percent, put that money into um, community service type items and reduce those pressures that the police who are taught to be prejudicious against poor and minorities and not trust them because it is a culture. Maybe that would offset that because here's the thing. If you're doing the right thing, why do you need protection? Why do you need protection above a common citizen that you're working with to have more protections than that person? It, it, it basically, it's, I'm a king, you're a, you're a servant, so I can do what I want. Patrick, I appreciate your call. Retired LAPD officer calling us from East Los Angeles. We're at 866-893-KPECC. We'll continue with more listener calls and comments from our guests as we talk about the move to defund police back in one minute. Joe Biden has just come out and says he does not believe police should be defunded. Joe Biden, Democratic candidate for president, the Minneapolis City Council majority says it will defund its police department and reconstitute it as something different. That's what we're talking about, as well as the general call for defunding police departments. Next hour, our political analysts will be with us to talk about the latest uh, going on in politics nationally. Right now, we're talking with Jeff Noble, former Deputy Chief Irvine Police, Norm Stamper, former Seattle Police Department Chief, and Cheryl Dorsey, uh, retired LAPD sergeant. We're also taking listener calls. Uh, Sergeant Dorsey, uh, love to hear your response to our last caller before the break, retired LAPD officer. Yeah, I agree. Listen, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. By and large, most police officers are doing the right thing. They come on for the, the right reasons. And so if police chiefs, and maybe this, this will force police departments to admit that you got a few bad apples and get rid of them, because if they don't, then they run the risk of falling by the wayside of um, Minneapolis and being disbanded. And so this problem is easily fixed. You know, we had, again, when I first joined the LAPD, um, there was community-based policing going on. And I think it was very effective. We had and still have uh, the rank of P3 plus one. They were senior lead officers and they were the officers that were responsible for liaisoning 
between community, neighborhood watch, block captains, and the department. It gave those block captains great autonomy and access to the patrol captain to talk about things that were of an issue, quality of life concerns. And so there's a way to fix this, but we first must address the errant officers who are out there repeatedly committing misconduct that leads to ultimately what we saw with Derek Chauvin. This was an officer who had 18 personnel complaints. How is it that you get to 18 personnel complaints and on your way to 19, but for you kill your 19th victim? So with him at 16, five, four, three personnel complaints, Mr. Floyd would be alive and we wouldn't be here. Do do you hold uh, the view that our last caller expressed that the police union has too much power? Absolutely. And listen, I, I, I testified several times with regards to AB 392 here in California when police officers can use deadly force and they traced in, you know, uh, officers who had been involved in deadly use of force incidents and said if they have to think about when they're going to pull their trigger on their duty weapon, it's going to be too cumbersome. And I'm like, are you kidding me? If you aren't aren't equipped, if you aren't confident in your training, if you don't know what to do, then you shouldn't be on the department. Police unions pay tremendous amount of campaign money to politicians. And by the time AB 392 was agreed upon, it was watered down. Why? Because of the pressure and the pushback from the police unions here. And it's not unique to California. This goes on across the nation. You see presidents of the Fraternal Order of Police Officers who seemingly haven't seen the murder of a black man or black woman that doesn't excite them. And so we need to, if you're going to defund something, how about you neuter police unions? Um, you know, it's, it's reminiscent of what we hear about teachers unions, about those who claim, you know, they're the obstruction to reforming public education. And, and of course, teachers unions say they're at the forefront of it. And, you know, the same way with um, police unions, we hear from them, look, we want to get bad cops as much as anybody. And, and, and we believe in reforming and improving uh, how law enforcement does. But of course, you still get into the details where, you know, how much protection under the law should law enforcement officers have or not. And unions, of course, have, have consistently uh, held that officers should not be have more legal exposure. Jeff Noble, former Deputy Chief, Irvine Police Department, your response to our last caller? Well, I think he got a lot of things spot on. But, you know, I mean, this really comes down to the willingness of the legislature. And he mentioned that it was Republicans funding the, the unions. Um, this is this, we're in California. This is a heavy Democrat state. We have a supermajority of Democrat legislatures. We have a Democrat governor. Um, and yet what we see is Governor Newsom uh, was widely reported earlier in the week uh, banning California Post from training on the carotid control technique. Now, putting aside whether that technique should be used or shouldn't be used, if, if, if it's the governor's position that it should not be used, then banning posts from providing the training really doesn't achieve his goal um, because it doesn't prevent agencies from providing their own training, and it certainly doesn't prevent agencies from allowing their officers to use it. We have a supermajority of Democrats in the legislature. Last year, uh, the legislature did stand up. They, they changed the, uh, the use of force law in the state, which was, was, which was appropriate. They at, created a new law that, that uh, uh, created more open openness to uh, public records as far as uh, use of force instance 
if if the legislature and the governor believe that the carotid control technique or any other part of policing needs to be changed, they could pass the legislation right away. Um, but they don't do it because they, you know, again, it comes back to the strong union uh, influence. All right. Uh, let me share some other listener comments. Uh, Desiree in Beverly Hills says, I'm African-American. It's up to the good police officers. They have to be able to hold their fellow officers accountable. I've been racially profiled and nothing is going to change unless non-people of color hold others accountable. That's Desiree in Beverly Hills. Donna in Pasadena says, defunding police is a complex idea. When people talk about abolishing police, they're talking about getting the way rid of the way it's organized, reorganizing, shifting money to the community. Elaine in Redondo Beach says she heard a law professor, Deborah Ramirez, propose that officers cover uh, carry personal liability insurance than those uh, with excessive numbers of complaints would be priced out of police work. You can share your comments on the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. My thanks to Cheryl Dorsey, Norm Stamper, and Jeff Noble, as well as all our terrific callers for joining us. Much more to come in our second hour on AirTalk. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Hope your day's off to a good start. Coming up a little bit later, it's politics. We got a whole crew. We have so much in politics to talk about. We've added extra, extra experts. Try saying that fast. Um, experts <laughs> to join us a little bit later this hour. But we begin with our daily update on COVID-19 as more and more people are coming out into the world after being in their bubbles. We'll talk about what we anticipate seeing in the number of COVID-19 cases. We'll talk about various treatments that are being studied, as well as progress on a vaccine. We're so glad to have joining us once more, Professor of Medicine, Infectious Disease Specialist from UC San Francisco Medical Center, Dr. Peter Chin Hong. So good, doctor, to have you with us again on AirTalk. Uh, always a pleasure, Larry. Thanks for having me on. Are you getting out in the more, world more yourself these days? With some trepidation. So, I, you know, I always wanted to keep my tradition of going outdoors. So I've always done that a little bit. But in terms of takeout, I've been doing that a little bit more. Probably not so courageous as to do in uh, restaurant dining as yet. Okay, so not ready. I was looking at an interesting poll about what epidemiologists are willing to do now, what they had anticipated time frame for when they're going to feel uh, safe to go out and do things. And it was it was interesting to me because one of the things that the uh, epidemiologists said was that they wouldn't be ready to go do indoor dining in a restaurant for probably many months down the road. And um, sounds like you're reluctant to do that, too, even with spacing indoors. Yeah, I'm just a little bit nervous. I mean, I, I, I could imagine myself going in an outdoor setting. And in fact, the, uh, over the weekend, we went to wine country. And, you know, some of those restaurants are open for indoors now. I think in the outdoor setting there is it's wide and open and i feel a little bit more courageous about staying there so i think um you know it depends on the restaurant and i i've noticed that some restaurants are very small and even with 
trying to reduce capacity by 50%, it still doesn't feel right to me. Yeah, I understand. And we're all envious now that you were up in Napa Valley or <laughs> in wine country over over the weekend. That sounds that sounds wonderful. Um, are you anticipating that we're going to see a spike in hospitalizations as a result of so many people being out because just, you know, businesses are restarting, first of all. And then secondly, we've had over a week now of large scale protests. Yes, I mean, I think it's undoubtedly a possibility that we will see a spike in cases. I think the, you know, the real million-dollar question is whether or not our hospital resources will be able to keep up with that increase in cases, and hopefully they will, because, again, this is, again, a, a sliding scale kind of situation. So if public health officials can react to you know, as, as cases increase and scale back on restrictions, that's going to be the key. If people wait too long, it will be, again, too many people out there with disease spreading rapidly, like bombs going off, and then it may be too late. I was uh, I was talking with someone who said, well, now it's been more than a week since uh, the first large protests. You know, shouldn't we start seeing something? And uh, but I thought, well, maybe it's going to be longer delayed because most of the people at the protest, not all, but the majority are young. So it would seem to me that it would be in their interactions over the next couple of weeks with older people that you would be likely to see those sorts of cases that would be visible. Is 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 that correct? Well, I mean, it, it's partially correct, Larry. I think that young people are not immune from getting sick. But you're right, the people who may get seriously ill would be folks who are older. And also, like you pointed out, there would be a lag time between, you know, these large-scale gatherings and when uh, people would actually turn positive. The other caveat is I've noticed, at least depending on the area, more people in these large-scale gatherings who are protesting are actually wearing masks. So, again, there would be heterogeneity and the effects of those large-scale gatherings as well as like based on the prevalence in the area on what the impact on cases would be in two weeks. I was uh, I was surprised at seeing some of the differences in in how people uh, where you see people wearing masks and others. Want. I, I was at Long Beach yesterday and I was walking along the pedestrian jogging path there and and um, my family and I were among the only ones masked as we were walking along. Very few other people were wearing masks as they were riding bikes, rollerblading, um, walking uh, out there. I, I'm used to, you know, the neighborhood where I am where people are, are quite conscientious about masking. And what is your sense about that? Is it is part of it just when people are out recreating they they just don't want the vestiges of of the idea you know what what came with the coronavirus and they want to feel free or do you think that there's something else that's at play there i mean i think there are multiple things i mean i think on the coast people probably feel a little bit more courageous they want to recapture that life that they remembered from pre-covid days but i do notice that in some areas even in california people are mandating masks like in even in the farmer's market again when we went to wine country this weekend there was a farmer's market in Napa and even though it was outdoors in a parking lot and they were limiting the number of people there they mandated that everyone wear a mask so I think in those situations depending on the sensitivity and the you know how how um, 
you know, forward thinking the organizers are, it is, it was very heartwarming to see that happen. Um, we do know that there's some data and speaking to my colleagues around the country that it seems that, uh, I mean, uh, a lot of folks who are wearing masks are on the coast, they're kind of um, in cities, they're a little bit, they may be more educated versus uh, countryside. There may be some impact on politics and on the ability to wear masks. So all these things are afoot. And it was it's really interesting for me talking to my colleagues around the country as to what people are doing in different parts. We're talking with Dr. Peter Chin Hong, joining us from San Francisco, where he is a professor at UC San Francisco. He's at the medical center there and also an infectious disease specialist. So chance for you to ask him any questions about the coronavirus, COVID-19, 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722. So here's a shift. We heard initially... Um, with the coronavirus, that ibuprofen may uh, compromise an individual's health, make the person more susceptible uh, to the effects of COVID-19. Now we hear it's being tested as a possible treatment for symptoms. What happened, Dr. Chenong? I know. Well, first of all, I never really believed that first report about ibuprofen being wrong for COVID-19. It didn't make any sense to me. There wasn't enough data, and of course, we found that later it was just based on rumors and actually fake news that was circulating on the WhatsApp messaging app, um, you know, spurred on by a bunch of uh, people uh, that was responsible for the WHO making that initial announcement, which they one day later retracted. Now, thinking of it as cure seems to be like a hundred or moderating disease seems like a 180-degree turn. And again, I'm not sort of like embracing it either. I mean, I continue to take ibuprofen. I mean, a lot of COVID-19 gives me a headache anyway in terms of what's happening around the country. But um, I think in terms of embracing it fully, I think we really need to wait for data. And and much of the narrative of COVID-19 research, as you know, has been people jumping on data too fast. And I think we really just have to be circumspect about the whole thing. It's interesting. It may make sense because it impacts the receptors, those ACE2 receptors that COVID-19 likes to land on, that's the bed, before it kind of exerts its negative impacts. So if it impacts on that, maybe there is a way it modulates infection or progression of disease. But again, it's too early to tell. I would say conservatively that it's no reason to not take it, but I wouldn't say it's the reason to take it because you think it's going to help you. Uh, While we're talking about medications, uh, the Lancet uh, article on hydroxychloroquine um, that uh, was highly influential, which uh, concluded there were serious harms by taking that drug for people uh, with COVID-19, that article has now been retracted um, by the Lancet. So where are we on hydroxychloroquine? I still am not enthusiastic about it. Actually, what has not been published is actually some other data showing that, you know, there's the VA cooperative data where there's also a signal of danger. But I think people are very cautious about, again, publishing that before rigorous peer review. But again, it doesn't make sense to me that it's you're using a malaria or rheumatoid arthritis drug for a virus. Again, we haven't really treated a virus properly without 
using an antiviral drug. And again, there's no reason that hydroxychloroquine will be great for the inflammatory part of the of the illness, which which is where ibuprofen and some of these other agents come in. So again, you know, I, I'll wait for the data, but I'm not going to rush out and buy any or take any uh, stores for my rheumatoid arthritis patients. We're talking with Dr. Peter Chen Hong, UC San Francisco School of Medicine and Medical Center, 866-893-KPECC, or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Let's talk with Rob in Long Beach. You're on AirTalk. Sure. Um, I have a question about what guidelines recommend, or whether there are guidelines that recommend wearing masks or coverings when people are outdoors recreating, such as you, Larry said you were doing Long Beach, which I live in Long Beach and we don't have a requirement that you wear masks outside. And the new World Health Organization recommendations for masks recommends you wear them when you cannot maintain social distancing. They don't seem to suggest you wear them when you're out riding a bike or running or walking and you are just passing by people. So... Yeah, I, I guess what I was seeing was people were not maintaining social distancing. When I walk in my neighborhood, I don't wear a mask because it's it's a suburban area. I don't I don't come within ten feet of anyone, let alone six feet. But in on the pedestrian path in Long Beach, because people move at different rates, there's no way for me to cape that distance at all times. So that's why in that setting I chose to wear a mask. But Dr. Chen Hong, you want to talk about best practices, please? Totally. I mean, I'd say if you don't know what situation you're going into, it's safe to carry a mask with you. Again, it's not really about whether you have a mask or you can do social distancing. It's whether or not you can control your environment. So when Larry's walking in a suburban area, you know, there's not a lot of people around and it's probably and it's fine not to wear. If you're in a farm in Mendocino, it doesn't make sense to wear a mask and think of that as an all or none. Again, in most cases, when you're running or recreating, if there are not a lot of people around, sure, it doesn't make sense to wear a mask unless you want to, you know, avoid the stares of people who are looking at you sort of with evil eye, which is what some of my colleagues started doing. They started wearing masks just because they didn't want to take the people's eyes when they ran by them quickly. But anyway, in a crowded area, like on a pedestrian boardwalk, even if you're outdoors and there are tons of people around, Again, you can't really control your environment. So I would say wear a mask. It's not whether or not you're on the beach or you're not on the beach. It's whether or not you can control your environment. I appreciate your call, Rob. Thank you very much. 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. What are we learning about uh, blood type or genetics and its potential interaction with severity or or vulnerability to even contract COVID-19. Yeah, these are really fast, uh, you know, very emerging topics right now. And I think there is no consensus, although there's been some intriguing data, both from the Italians a few weeks ago about blood type A being a negative risk factor for progression, not for just getting the disease. It's like of the people who got it and they got it on ventilator. They tended to have more blood type A's. And then recently there was one from 23andMe saying that if you had blood type O, you were protected. Again, these are very, very crude measures. And I think over time we will probably understand some finer uh, aspects about what these 
very crude measures represent at a much uh, more uh, refined genetic level. And that's very difficult. And that gets to the point of what contribution does genetics, if it at all plays something, it probably does play a part in progression, but how much it plays depends on the context. You know, I personally probably think that structural racism or access to healthcare probably plays a bigger role. Some environmental factors play a bigger role than genetics. But again, we're not really sure. At the end of the day, it's probably a combination of environment and genetics, like with many things in healthcare that impacts, you know, how someone progresses. And of course, as we know, in the East Coast versus West Coast, it's about surge capacity. So it doesn't matter what your genetics are if the hospital doesn't have enough ICU beds to take care of you a lot of people are going to unfortunately not do well. Ron in the city of Orange, thank you for joining us. Your question, please. My question is about testing. Um, a lot of hospitals are using both the PCR test and the rapid test. Um, the PCR is supposed to be more effective, so I'm trying to figure out why some hospitals are still continuing to use the rapid test. Um, and second part of my question was um, some states, they're cutting back on testing and they're seeing an increase in unexplained pneumonia deaths or heart disease-related deaths and trying to see if there's a correlation between uh, patients not being tested enough. All right, Ron, thanks. Those are such great questions from Ron. I mean, first of all, with the issue of testing, uh, I think in our hospital system, we've kind of shied away from the rapid, uh, many of these rapid tests are antigen-based testing uh, or other sort of more rapid tests because of, you know, not having enough sensitivity. I think the pros originally for that kind of testing was that, it, you know, they could be cheaper, they could be rolled out in a much more wide-scale way. But I think that in, initial enthusiasm has been kind of tempered by exactly what was brought up, which is they're not that sensitive. So you'll have a bunch of people with false negatives, um, and that wouldn't be great. So I think we're kind of stuck in, at least in our hospital system, for the traditional sort of almost like you're getting a brain biopsy, um, uh, nasal pharyngeal swab. For um, now, because it's a little bit better test. Brain biopsy. It is pretty extreme. I haven't had it, but people I know have had it. It's pretty extreme. The last time I got it, yeah. Yeah, feel like they're removing a, a part of your head. Uh, Dr. Peter Chen Ong with us, UC San Francisco Medical Center. Again, we're taking your calls at 866-893-KPECC. Our latest on COVID-19 coming up in about 10 minutes. We'll talk politics as we do every Monday, and we've expanded our team of analysts because we have a lot to cover COVID-19, its political dimensions, and of course the protests against police brutality and racism across the country. We'll talk about the politics of that too. It's Air Talk on KPCC. Back in one minute. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC, the KPCC app, and any type of smart speaker from Amazon, Google, or others. All you have to do is tell it, play KPCC, and there we are with you in every room in your house. So you don't have to be out driving around. 
you can be right there in your home safety bubble and listening to KPCC all day and all night. With me right now is Dr. Peter Chin Hong's become a real favorite among AirTalk listeners, UC San Francisco Medical Center professor as well as infectious disease specialist. We're at 866-893-KPCC, the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. You can also tweet a question at AirTalk or post it on the AirTalk Facebook page. Uh, also, uh, wanted to ask you, since we were talking about medication, how useful are antibiotics to treat the symptoms of COVID-19? Not useful at all. In fact, uh, there's some good data now showing that people overuse antibiotics at the beginning. I think it was a little bit understandable in the beginning of COVID. People were nervous about all these patients coming in, and they weren't really sure if it was just COVID or if it was COVID+. Plus. As the epidemic moved on, we realized it was mainly just COVID and there weren't a lot of things. Because even in our hospital system, we were doing a lot of diagnostics of people. And it it remained primarily just a virus without bacteria. So there wasn't really any need to unleash uh, regular antibiotics. And of course, we know that when we overuse antibiotics, we lose them because we get more resistance. So I think that's kind of like the question, particularly in people who are not very ill, which is the most the most cases of people who have COVID actually they're mild or moderate or have mild symptoms. So for sure, those people don't need a Z-pack with sort of reassurance. They just need the reassurance and following up to see if they get sick. Chelsea and Altadena says, uh, when do you predict that we'll hit herd immunity and how do you develop that if if physical distancing continues to be enforced? So that's a great question from Chelsea. So the quick answer to that question is we would not get herd immunity until we have the vaccine. We will never get to a place where we have 70% of people infected to protect the 30% who may not be protected. That's the what Sweden was thinking. They were thinking, well, we'll not enforce shelter in place and let's just make sure everybody kind of got exposed a little bit, kind of like the old chicken pox party that you had for your kids in the old days. But that wasn't the case. In fact, Sweden, as people may know, had the highest numbers of cases in Scandinavia and one week had even higher numbers of cases than England. So I think that experiment, natural experiment, didn't work. The Swedes are reevaluating their policy, and I don't think we'll have herd immunity until we have the vaccine. We heard from a lot of listeners who've taken part in protests over the last week plus who want to know, should they get tested for COVID-19 um, because they've been out in close contact with people at the protest? Should that be routine for people who've attended? That's a great question. And some states have been more um, sort of uh, stern in their recommendations or encouraging. So in New York, as people may know, Governor Cuomo said, actually thought or said it was people's civic duty to get tested. I'm kind of like in between, meaning that if people were, again, it's just a matter of how you assess your risk. Were you wearing a mask? Did you have to like take off your mask to shout and then you were at risk to other people? Were you like touching your face a lot because because you can't really wash your hands or use hand sanitizer enough in the field. In those cases, I would say uh, it probably isn't a bad idea to get tested. I'm, I'm always a proponent of getting tested because, again, the more we know what's going on in the community, the better we can protect the other people who are negative. And it does give you a little bit of assurance. 
The only problem is, of course, we don't know when people turn positive. I would say you wait at least a week, follow your symptoms, you know, maybe get a test of the week if you didn't protect yourself out in the field. And then, uh, you know, continue to watch yourself if you're negative. Uh, Jeffrey, uh, writing on the AirTalk page, brings up the contrast with Las Vegas. And he raises the concern that there, unlike protests where people are typically local, you have people coming from all different places who could potentially take COVID-19 back to their communities. I know that the casino hotels that have reopened are attempting to enforce six-foot physical distancing, but not everybody is masking. And, um, you know, who knows how hard they're going to have to go after people are drinking and gambling and whatnot to keep people apart. So do you have concerns about Vegas essentially being a breeding ground for the virus? I have a million percent concern about Vegas. I've seen some of those pictures on social media. I, You know, many of these settings, as we know, are indoors, which is much riskier for covid than being in the outdoors, which we've talked about a lot so far in this, you know, in this hour. Um, again, and again, people coming from all over the place, you have alcohol involved, you have a lot of emotion, people are joyful. You get back into that casino mode and you kind of become a different person when the world wasn't in the COVID situation. So I guess for all those situations, I worry a lot about Las Vegas. And um, again, we will, time will tell what will be the aftermath. Uh, JSK asks on the page, are there any good studies about plasma antibody treatments yet? Uh, No great randomized controlled studies, but there are studies showing that it's safe in COVID-19 with not a lot of side effects. In fact, our experience in Northern California supports that study uh, where, you know, I've actually had zero side effects in our patients by giving convalescent plasma and as we know, we've had this long history in infectious disease of giving people's antibodies for different uh, infections, as early as polio, and then SARS and MERS, uh, hepatitis A. So I think it's safe. There's a good biologic plausibility that it works. We just don't have the specific uh, COVID data yet. I want to thank you as always, Doctor. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much, and I'm looking forward to us talking in a few days more. Thank you again. Thanks so much, Larry. Bye. All right, bye-bye. We affectionately call him Dr. PCH here, Dr. Peter Chin Hong, infectious disease specialist and professor of medicine at UCSF Medical Center. Uh, We just have some news out of Minneapolis. A judge there has set $1 million bail for the Minneapolis police officer charged with second-degree murder in George Floyd's death. 44-year-old Derek Chauvin uh, said almost nothing during an 11-minute hearing in which he appeared before Hennepin County Judge Denise Riley on closed-circuit TV from the state's maximum security prison in Oak Park Heights. His attorney did not contest the bail, which has been raised from the $500,000 initially set in the case. Uh, Also, his attorney did not address the substance of the charges, which also include third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC.
extraordinary news cycle that we're a part of, of course, with protests taking place all across the United States and dozens of them over the course of the past week plus right here in Southern California, focusing attention on police brutality, on racism in America, and on reform efforts for policing. This, of course, um, going right to political issues, which in some cases are highly divisive, but of course, uh, in the killing of George Floyd, clearly a unified American response of outrage in that case. Question is, what politically comes of these protests taking place in uh, urban centers as well as small town communities, racially diverse places, and places that are rather homogeneous? Joining us today are our uh, three uh, special uh, commentators on politics. We begin with Angela Rye, a Democratic political strategist. She's with the firm Impact Strategies in D.C. Angela, it's good to have you back with us on Air Talk. I've seen you so often on CNN. Nice to have you back with us today. First of all, we're already seeing, aren't we, uh, the Justice in Policing Act being introduced in response to this. Yes. Um, this this morning, uh, the members of the Congressional Black Caucus led an effort to introduce legislation that would... Um, deal with some of the very challenges we've seen for far too long, um, making the chokehold and um, the cartoid, cartoid um, hold um, civil rights violations and also um, ensuring that they would be federally outlawed. Um, the bill um, produces a national registry for police who have um, histories of violence and excessive force. Um, and it does so many other things. I think the challenge that we have right now is that in an environment where people are talking about defunding the police, which is a form of divestment um, that would take some of those resources and put them into community programs, into mental health workers and social workers who really should be um, answering the call instead of the police in far too many instances, that bill doesn't address that. And I think Senator Harris um, mentioned in her remarks today at the press conference that she knows it's just one part of the umbrella and that there has to be a lot more work done. But before we do anything else, um, there, uh, police officers have to be held accountable. And at the federal level, it reduces um, a willfully standard to a reckless standard, which will make um, these investigations and these federal prosecutions of officers far easier than it's been. Um, and I think it's just time for some of these things to be changed. So while resources are being transferred out of police departments and military equipment is being taken away from officers who do not need that kind of equipment, um, this is a first step that is necessary, but it certainly cannot be the only step. And in a, in a Senate that refused to pass an anti-lynching bill just last week, maybe they can find their conscience, consciences now and not just only march in the street like Mitt Romney, but ensure that this is one of many things they pass to get this right. The uh, the standard uh, that's employed in um, law enforcement cases, I think in California, has already changed. And Angela, as you mentioning, this would change what the federal standard would be. Angela Rye with us. Do you think that there is bipartisan appetite for for adopting at least some, if not all, of the reforms in this bill? Well, I think there sure better be. And if there isn't um, support for this, um, I think that we should make um, people's lives hell on Capitol Hill. You cannot 
post Black Lives Matter in your social media feed and wear T-shirts and march in the street. And then when it um, comes time for you to look at um, what you can do to change what's happening, well, how you can stop the, the, the killing, the brutal killing of black people by police officers, and you don't take that opportunity to pass legislation, to amend it if you don't like it, just all out protest it, that's a problem. And so people will continue to die as long as the law is in the laws in their favor, right? Like that is what is true before us. And I think that the federal government also has to take responsibility for shifting away resources for, um, from police departments that don't respect what is being asked of them. There has to be uh, financial punitive um, damages associated with um, police violence and their refusal to be transparent, their refusal to participate um, in ways that would ensure people can live rather than taking lives away. We're talking with Angela Rye, political strategist, also with us, Claremont McKenna College professor of politics, Jack Pitney. Jack, it's good to have you back with us. What do you think are the prospects for, if not the justice in policing bill, uh, the Democrats have proposed other federal police reforms on a bipartisan basis? Uh, I think it, there's a very good chance that something is going to be done because uh, this is an issue that does have support at some level on a bipartisan basis. Uh, Justin Amash, a, a former Republican who's now an independent, uh, is very much in support of uh, abolishing qualified immunity for police officers. Uh, and uh, he had, there are Republicans who would agree with that. Uh, so I think this is an opportunity uh, for bipartisan agreement, uh, Democrats with a concern for civil liberties, Republicans with a concern for government overreach. Uh, the question is whether they can actually get it done in a highly polarized Congress. That is more of a, uh, that's more of a jump ball. And uh We'll see if there's any presidential leadership on this issue. We'll continue our conversation. Joining us in a moment from Pomona College, uh, Professor Amanda Hollis-Brusky with us. And uh, we're going to be focused on the political dimensions of George Floyd's killing, the protests that have followed that, legislation that's now introduced. We'll also be talking about politics and COVID-19 and uh, the difficult decision of vice presidential running mate for Joe Biden as well. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. We'll be back in 90 seconds. You're listening to Air Talk on the KPCC app 89.3 and on smart speakers everywhere, just tell to play KPCC. Coming up on Fresh Air with Terry Gross, journalist Doug Swanson talks about one of the oldest and most celebrated law enforcement agencies in America, the Texas Rangers. That's with Terry Gross. Fresh Air at noon right here on 89.3 KPCC. President Trump is reportedly considering making a major address about race relations in America. 
His predecessor, Barack Obama, not long after being elected to office, wrote a speech that many of us consider to be one of the great American speeches uh, ever on any topic, but uh, particularly insightful as it depicted race in America. The question is, uh, would President Trump be able to say anything unifying on that topic, or would it prove to be polarizing. Amanda Hollis-Brusky, Pomona College Associate Professor of Politics. Good to have you back with us. Um, The president's aides early on had asked him to come out and to say more about the killing of George Floyd. He said a bit, didn't really elaborate a lot after that. Do you think he should come out and more fully address this? You know, when I teach the Voting Rights Act in my American Constitutionalism seminar, I start with Bloody Sunday, March 7th, 1965, where black civil rights protesters were attempting to peacefully march from Selma to Montgomery, but were met on the Edmund Pettus Bridge by police in riot gear. They were brutally beaten with clubs, attacked with tear gas, and one protester was killed. And the parallels to the George Floyd incident here are striking to me. You know, Bloody Sunday changed the course of the nation for two reasons. Number one, it was televised and broadcast into the homes of millions of Americans who were tuned in watching the Nuremberg trials, convicted Nazis. And second, the president of the United States, Lyndon Johnson, responded within days, not just with a powerful speech, the infamous speech or the famous speech where he uses the phrase, we shall overcome, legitimizing the civil rights movement, but more critically with legislation, the Voting Rights Act. And so if Trump wants to take a lesson from the LBJ playbook, he ought to first say unequivocally, Black Lives Matter, and two, propose and urge Congress to adopt reform legislation, some of which we've already been discussing here, maybe starting with changes to qualified immunity that makes it near impossible to convict police officers. Jack Pitney, do you think that Trump should take this on or that he's he's poorly suited to give this type of a speech? Uh, if, if we had a normal president, uh, this, is, this would be a no-brainer. This would be something he absolutely had to do. Unfortunately, talking about race and giving prepared remarks are two of Trump's greatest weaknesses. Uh, So if he were to attempt to do it, I I wouldn't hold out much hope for anything successful. And also when it came to qualified immunity, in fact, there's some breaking news on this. The White House press secretary said that was a non-starter as far as Trump is concerned. So that is not uh, an encouraging development in uh, in this breaking story. All right. And we also had um, uh, Bill Barr, uh, attorney general, uh, say in an interview earlier, I think it was on Fox, but I'm I'm not certain. Don't quote me on that. But uh, he said um, he thought that um, there was racism within police departments, but not systemic racism within American policing. Jack, your your response to that? I don't think too many people would agree with that. He's splitting hairs about the word uh, systemic. Uh, But if there's one thing we've learned in recent weeks is that there is uh, a great deal of racism, a great deal of discrimination. And uh, it's something that demands attention at both the federal level and particularly at the state level. And uh, Barr really undercut his credibility uh, by playing his word games. Uh, another thing he said, well, uh, the tear gas they use at Lafayette Park wasn't chemical, uh, which is which is just ridiculous to anybody who's yeah. taken high school chemistry. Yeah, I think he said it. Well, he, he also talked about the pepper pellets and said that they weren't an irritant, but they're called pepper pellets. So, yeah, uh, yeah, just not uh, not his finest hour.
866-893-KPECC. If you have a question about the intersection of politics with the issues that we're dealing with right now, Angela Rye of, of the strategic firm Impact Strategies, um, how do you see this playing out in, in the presidential race? It is, um, is Trump, in your view, further hurting himself or is his base going to hold on this? You know, I really don't know what it will take for Donald Trump to hurt himself so severely that it results in folks not voting for him. Um, You know, I'm at the point now where I don't even believe what people say to the pollsters um, because we saw all of that in 2016 and so much more. Um, Hillary Clinton was winning hand over fist um, in polls with Donald Trump. But here's what I'll say about this year. I think that right now, um, Joe Biden and his team have such a remarkable opportunity to not take advantage of a moment, such a tender moment in our history, but they have the opportunity to demonstrate what real allyship looks like. Joe Biden has spent most of his campaign talking about, in fact, in one debate saying, I'm of the black community with a Freudian slip. Um, and he's, he's also spent a lot of time talking about how he will not take black voters for granted and how he has always had the support of the black community. Well, here's the opportunity that this year presents for Joe Biden to really earn it. We know that Donald Trump can't, whether it's calling football players who kneel, sons of or whether it's calling um, countries with immigrants who he doesn't like, their countries holds. Pardon my language, but I want to emphasize that point. This is someone who, even if he says Black Lives Matter, we would never believe that he believes that. So, Joe Biden, you could widen the gap between you and the nonsense that comes out of Donald Trump's mouth and the nonsense policies that he puts forth, the nonsense executive orders that he's put up instead of supporting the ones that were on the books under the Obama administration. He has the opportunity to make real change, to be a real ally, or as um, some of my friends have challenged me to use the term co-conspirator, for righteousness and for justice for black people in this country. That is what this time is requiring of all well-meaning politicians. And that is what we should be requiring of Joe Biden. Angela Rye joining us on Air Talk. Joe Biden uh, either has or is scheduled later today to meet with family members of George Floyd in Houston. Uh, the viewing of Mr. Floyd's body is today, visitation today in Houston. And then his funeral is scheduled for tomorrow in that city. Floyd is originally from Houston and then relocated to Minneapolis. We're talking with Angela Rye, Democratic political strategist, Claremont McKenna College Professor of Politics, Jack Pitney, and Pomona College Associate Professor of Politics, Amanda Hollis-Brusky. Again, if you want to ask questions about the intersection of politics and the issues we're talking about, we're at 866-893-KPECC. Let's talk about some of the other um, issues that, uh, you know, we're we're dealing with now, um, and, and that is, you know, with the president... Um, talking about bringing in the military and, um, you know, asserting itself uh, in cities across the country, um, calling governors weak and the like. Um, And then we had Senator Tom Cotton with his New York Times editorial supporting using the military to try and and control um, certain behavior in cities. Um, Angela, you know, where... We've seen tremendous pushback to that, even from former members of the military and even the Secretary of Defense, Mr. Esper, to this. So do you see this as having backfired? 
know, um, <laughs> I don't know what it will take for something to really backfire for Donald Trump in a meaningful way. People constantly criticize um, his actions, but then it doesn't turn into, um, you know, really forcing him into an apology or forcing him into taking a different course of action. When you see what he did last week, just to walk across the street to get a picture of him in front of a church holding a Bible like Hitler, um, there was no real backlash. It was for a moment, some, some discussion, right, about how he takes advantage of things and how he's using and wasting resources. And we know that he does this in ways that are that far exceed what Barack Obama did. But it still has not um, backfired enough to impeach said president. We know that he's violated um, several provisions that are required for impeachment. Um, and so I think that the truth will just be in the pudding at the polls in November. And that is, again, why I would go back to what is required of um, the person who's running against him for um, you know, becoming the leader of the free world. And that means that um, Joe Biden has got some ground to make up with the very voters who kept him in this race. Um, and that means that he has to really speak to issues that matter to people. I'm not even going to spend time addressing what Donald Trump needs to do, because I feel like it is um, it's too far gone. OK, that he can do that makes me feel safe or <laughs> like that he should be in that seat. Jack, Jack Pitney, um, Jack, what um so is Joe Biden at this point, do you think the odds are he's likely to choose an African-American woman as his running mate, given the kind of racial discord of, of this past week and a half? Uh, yes, he's already made clear. He's already made a promise that he would uh, name a woman as his running mate. And right now it appears that the leading uh, candidates for that are African-American. Uh, and leading that list, of course, is our own Senator Kamala Harris. Uh, Harris has her critics, of course, like every politician. But uh, given that she's run for president, given held, that she's held statewide office, uh, I, I think uh, right now, if I had to make a bet, I would put my money on her. We're talking with Jack Pitney, Claremont McKenna College professor. I want to apologize. Uh, we had a profanity that went out, and I thought we had... Uh, been able to cut out of it. We didn't. And I apologize that went out over the air uh, just about two minutes ago. We're talking with Jack Pitney, Claremont McKenna College professor, Amanda Hollis-Brusky, Pomona College professor, and Democratic political strategist Angela Rye joining us on Air Talk. We'll continue talking about politics and how it relates to what's going on right now with protests across the country, as well as concerns about COVID-19 spread. It's Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC or the KPCC app. DD from View Park in Los Angeles says we need systemic progressive change FDR style. Biden needs to choose a progressive VP to balance him out as a candidate, maybe Elizabeth Warren or Stacey Abrams. Professor Hollis Brusky, what do you think about that? Well, I think the Veep stakes have been closely followed for months now, um, with first with the onset of coronavirus. There was a question as to whether or not Joe Biden would choose someone who was younger, um, being more at risk. Um, as 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 an older president, 
and now we are thinking about um, this pick as as a signal to black Americans that uh, Joe Biden is is listening, that Joe Biden is an ally and that Joe Biden will work to promote real change. Um, and I, I do think that some of the leading candidates that have been discussed, as Jack mentioned, um, Kamala Harris or Stacey Abrams. I think Stacey Abrams is powerful because she brings a focus not just on the black community and black rights and solidarity, but also her focus has been on voting rights, um, something that taps into kind of the cornerstone of every other right, something that's integral to get um, to achieve the kind of progress that uh, black Americans and people of color are looking for. So I would look to Stacey Abrams as probably my uh, dark horse favorite at this point. All right. Uh, let me go back to Angela Rye. Angela Rye, what your thoughts about what would be the smartest choice for VP for Joe Biden? Let me start with what would not be smart. Um, there's been a lot of conversation um, of late about Amy Klobuchar. Um, people are racing the fact that Amy, Klo- Amy Klobuchar's prosecutorial experience, um, that she failed to prosecute any police officer for this type of misconduct and this type of excessive violence and death. Um, Amy Klobuchar has since tried to go on a black media cleanup tour um, to demonstrate that she is an ally to the community, um, only to really just have all of us reflect back on her record that that, in fact, is not true. It is lip service. And so what I would say is that if um, Joe Biden is paying attention, again, to the data from um, what happened in the primary, we know that South Carolina first, and there were several states with large black populations thereafter. Um, Black people were responsible for resurrecting Joe Biden's campaign from the dead. To that end, there's a debt, and the debt that we've paid should be, first, um, a black woman vice president. Um, There are several black women who are more than qualified and exceptional on their list um, to be considered. I think um, today Kamala Harris certainly had a strong moment, not just at the press conference um, for this bill that she and Cory Booker were the lead sponsors on in the Senate, but also in her um, appearance on The View after where she was baited by Megan McCain and um, talked eloquently about the process for defunding the police and what it looks like to transform communities communities radically, which is what we need right now. So I think that if he's smart, um, and I know there's some smart people around him, that they will be picking a black woman for uh, the vice presidential pick. I cannot think of a race in my lifetime. Where, where this pick is um, so essential and critical to uh, his victory. I want to thank all of you for being with us. That's Angela Rye, Democratic political strategist based in D.C. Jack Pitney is professor of politics at Claremont McKenna College. And Amanda Hollis-Brusky, associate professor of politics at Pomona College. She's author of Ideas with Consequences, The Federalist Society and the Conservative Counter-Revolution. Let's take you now to uh, a memorial for George Floyd on this day when his visitation is being held in Houston. KPCC reporter Emily Garrens at the corner of First and Broadway in downtown L.A. Emily, good morning. Please set the scene for us. Hi, Larry. Nice to talk to you. So, like you mentioned, we're right here near Grand Park, right in front of City Hall. And this is a memorial. So there's a lot of clergy here. There's rabbis. I've seen people wearing all different kinds of, you know, the, you know, I should apologize. I don't know all the names of the garments, but the very specific robes for different churches. There's people from the AME church. There's Buddhists here. There's Muslim faith leaders here. 
And uh, the memorial is about to start at noon, and there's four caskets set up in the middle of the intersection to represent the four corners of the earth. I've been told there's a lot of flowers. People have been placing wreaths on the caskets. There's photos of George Floyd, of Breonna Taylor, and of other uh, men and women who have been killed uh, by the police. So it's a peaceful crowd. Like I said, a lot of clergy, um, not as big as protests we saw over the weekend, certainly, but still a good showing. And and it sounds like this one is is uh, thematically very different, that it is uh, intended as a simultaneous memorial. Is, is that right? A very specific, uh, almost religiously focused service. Yes, there's even pallbearers. And so there's there's people who are sort of handling the caskets. There's a, there's a, they're in the middle of a large circle, and people are sort of gathered around. Interestingly, earlier there was some effort to have white clergy be outside of the circle. There were some um, L.A. County Sheriff's deputies here earlier, and people had some concern about why they were here. So they were trying to put white clergy on the outside, black clergy on the inside, and then in the middle are the caskets. All right. We're talking with KPCC reporter Emily Guerin, who's in downtown Los Angeles, the corner of First and Broadway, where a memorial is taking place today, uh, as we heard, not just for George Floyd, but others who were killed in confrontations or in custody with police officers. Emily, thanks so much. We'll look forward to your reporting as we head into the afternoon right here on KPCC. Fresh Air with Terry Gross is next. She's going to be talking with the author of a new book about the Texas Rangers, one of the oldest and most written about law enforcement agencies in the country. I'll be back with you tomorrow morning at 10 for Air Talk on the KPCC app and at 89.3. Have a good day.